Would you please turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, in your Bibles, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Just over 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem. The Bible tells us that Jesus will come again. He will come again, and there will be signs, signs of Jesus' second coming. And that is our topic to get today, and it is uh, the topic for this brief series that I am entering, Signs of Jesus' Second Coming. And the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24 here, tells us what many of those signs are and will be. So let us read Matthew 24. If you're able to stand, please, would you just stand for the reading of God's word here? 1 through 14. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Jesus told them, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yet these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all of this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one, the one who endures to the end, will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout all the world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin, as we begin to consider this portion of scripture and the signs of your second coming, I pray, O oh God, that you would help, you would help all of us, to glean from your scripture, from the truth, Lord, that which you want us to know, that which you want us to respond to, that which you want us to be inspired by, to be corrected by, to be directed by, to be touched by, and ultimately to be drawn, to be drawn into faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Let it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please feel free to be seated. <clears throat> this, this message today is, is part one, uh, and we'll get into part two uh, on, a, on another Sunday coming up. Now, 
I could, I could quite simply outline the various signs of Jesus' second coming from what we just read. And I could make for you a list from Matthew chapter 24. And maybe sometimes you have made a list. I have chosen to try to try to go deeper and to see how at least some of the signs can apply to, to you and me in our present day life situation. And also I, I want to teach you some of the historical background to Matthew 24 and the history of what really happened in, in that first century with the Romans and the Jews. So think with me to begin with on this truth, okay? What Jesus said will happen will definitely happen. What Jesus said will happen will definitely happen. How do we know this? Well, we know it from the very first two verses of Matthew 24, which tell us that Jesus prophesied that that magnificent Jewish temple in Jerusalem would be totally destroyed. This is back in the first century. He prophesied that that incredible Jewish temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. <clears throat> and that is what happened about 40 years later. It happened. Look once again at Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him various temple buildings. But he, Jesus, responded, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. <clears throat> now what, what you need to understand is that the temple in Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish faith. And for many Jews, it was a symbol. It was a symbol that God Almighty was with them. It was a symbol to them. The temple buildings and the temple grounds occupied in that first century occupied about 36 acres. For comparison purposes, our Rosewood Church property here in Toronto is, is eight, 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 eight acres. And so the temple area would have been about four and a half times the size of our Rosewood Church property. For your interest, they actually began building the temple in Jerusalem around 20 B.C., before Christ. And it, and it wasn't finished, actually, until 64 A.D. It took, they say, 18,000 men over 80 years to build the temple. Imagine, for some people, they and their sons spent all of their lives building that temple. That's what they did. Some people think the temple wasn't, wasn't even totally finished when it was destroyed, that there was still a little bit of work to do. It was King Herod who was largely responsible for, 
for building the great temple and for providing the money, the funds, the supplies, the building materials. Uh, and he provided the building possibility on the site of where Solomon's temple used to be hundreds of years earlier. Now, why did Herod invest so much money and manpower? Why did King Herod invest so much money and manpower in the building of this great temple? Well, the answer is King Herod was trying to win over. He was trying to win over the Jewish subjects. And as well, he enjoyed big building projects. He wanted to see big building projects. The temple that Herod built was absolutely magnificent, awesome. It was big, and it, it dominated Jerusalem. Everyone knew about it. In Matthew 24, verse 2, when Jesus said, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. The disciples and anyone else would have been shocked. It would have been a big shock. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Peter turned. If Peter maybe turned to, um, to John. Peter might have turned to John and said, John, Jesus must be kidding me. This temple's going to be destroyed? No way. Obviously, the Bible doesn't tell us about that conversation, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that, if that happened. In the first century, <clears throat> when Jesus was on earth, the Romans ruled what was then Israel and Judea. In fact, in fact, if you've ever studied history of that time, the Roman general Pompey, P-O-M-P-E-Y, captured Jerusalem in 63 B.C., before Christ. And from then on, the Jewish people felt that the Roman government was denying them many freedoms. They wanted freedom. And they felt the Roman government was denying them freedoms, and the Jews had to pay a lot of taxes to Rome. Any of you enjoy paying taxes? No. They didn't want to be paying taxes to a foreign government either, especially. Well, what happened is this. In the year 66 AD, the Jews got fed up. They got fed up and they rebelled against the Roman government. Rome had soldiers stationed in the Holy Land and in the year 66 AD, many of the Jews decided to repel, to rebel in search of freedom from the Romans. When the Jews rebelled, Roman Emperor Nero sent an army under the leadership of General Vespasian to restore order. By the year 68 AD, just a couple of years later, Jewish resistance in the northern part of Israel was eradicated. For the most part, it was done away with. And the Roman armies then turned their attention towards the southern part of Israel and towards the great city of Jerusalem. 
In that same year, however, Emperor Nero died by suicide, creating a power vacuum in Rome. In the chaos, General Vespasian was declared emperor of the Roman Empire, and Vespasian returned to Rome from battling the Jews. He returned to Rome to rule the empire. Vespasian left his son Titus, Titus, to lead the army in their attack on Jerusalem. What happened is the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem and they began to slowly squeeze, they began to squeeze the life out of the Jewish stronghold. Jerusalem was under siege badly. The Roman armies refused to let any food into Jerusalem and most Jewish people couldn't leave the fortified city because if they did, the Roman army would either take them as prisoners or would kill them. And as the siege of Jerusalem continued, there was less and less food for the people who lived in Jerusalem. There was severe famine and although the Jews continued to fight off the Roman armies, sadly, people began to starve. It was a terrible time. There is a Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus who lived from 37 to 100 AD. Just out of curiosity, have any of you ever read some of Flavius Josephus' uh, historical writings? And any of you? Just wondering. Okay. Pastor Lisa has, yes. Josephus wrote a history called The Jewish Wars and other writings as well. Well, by the year 70 AD, the Roman army attackers had breached Jerusalem's outer walls. You have to understand, in those days, a lot of these cities had these big walls around them to protect themselves from invaders. Well, the armies breached, overpowered the outer walls, and began a systematic ransacking of the city. The historian Josephus tells us that when the Roman soldiers had taken the city, and they were, and they were going through to to plunder. To plunder means to, to steal anything of value, you know. You've conquered these people, we're taking anything we want and everything. Well, as the, the soldiers attempted to do that, Josephus tells us that the soldiers were so shocked with horror at the sights that they saw in Jerusalem that they actually went away empty-handed. Listen to what Josephus says. He says, when the Romans were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses. They then stood in horror of this sight and went out without touching anything. Starvation was so bad in Jerusalem during this terrible siege that Josephus even tells and I kind of, to be honest with you, I debated whether to tell you this, but it'll, it'll help you understand how sickening and how terrible the situation was. 
Josephus, during the siege, even tells a terrible story of a woman, a dear mother, who killed, who killed and roasted her little baby to survive a few more, a few more days. That's how bad things were. It's how terrible it had become for the people in Jerusalem. Josephus himself had experienced the, the, the horrors of the Roman uh, war and the siege. And Josephus says 97,000 Jewish people, 97,000 Jewish people were taken away as slaves and 1,100,000 Jewish people died in the, in the attack on Jerusalem. Now, how, how Josephus came up with those figures, how he knew those figures, no one knows, okay? No, no one knows, but that's what he records in his history book. By the year 70 AD, all right, the Roman army attackers finally broke through Jerusalem's outer walls and they began to destroy everything in the city. The attack also resulted in the burning and destruction of the temple which had served as the center of the Jewish faith as I had stated earlier. Now, some of you might wonder why the Roman armies were so destructive. It was probably because Jerusalem was a very difficult city to overpower because it was a city set upon a hill defended by religious fanatics. After about three, four years of trying to overtake Jerusalem, the Roman armies were, were fed up. They were exasperated, they were tired mentally, emotionally, physically, and they probably had little or no desire Sadly, no desire to show mercy. Furthermore, the Roman armies probably also had some of their friends die in the war with the Jews, which obviously would have made them very angry. All right, now, please go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2 again. All right? As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Now Jesus made that prediction. He prophesied that sometime around 30 to 33 AD. By the way, by the way, <clears throat> when you read or you hear of a date, and it, sa and it says A.D., like 33 A.D., okay? A.D. stands for Anno Domini, A-N-N-O Domini, D-O-M-I-N-I, which is Latin for in the year of the Lord. By the way, sometimes when I, uh, when I, spell a word or words, okay? Uh, it's not so much for the benefit of you here in the sanctuary or even our online viewers, but it's more for the benefit of our radio listeners, okay? So, Anno Domini 
which is Latin for in the year of the Lord, is what A.D. stands for. I mention this because I have found over the years that sometimes some people think A.D. Uh, stands for after the death of Jesus, and that's not, that's not what it is, okay? Our current year is 2022 A.D. All right. Jesus prophesied that the incredible Jewish temple <clears throat> in Jerusalem would be totally destroyed. The commentator in my New Living Translation study Bible says this. The commentator says, gazing at this glorious and massive structure, the disciples found Jesus' words about his destruction difficult to believe. But the temple was indeed destroyed only 40 years later when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. During the attack on Jerusalem, as we said earlier, many were killed and thousands of others were sent as slaves to work in the mines of Egypt, which Rome controlled and operated. Uh, some Jews were sent to the arenas of the Roman Empire, sadly, to be butchered for the amusement of the public. And the temple's sacred relics, the temple's sacred relics, were taken to Rome where they were displayed in celebration of their victory over Jerusalem. After 70 AD, the Jewish rebellion sputtered on for about three years and was finally extinguished, put an end to, in 73 AD. Put an end to. Um, the pockets of resistance were done away with, and by 73 AD, finally, the Jewish armies won the victory over Masada. M-A-S-A-D-A. -A -A. Now, some of you have maybe seen a documentary on Masada or a movie about Masada. Masada is an ancient stone fortress about 1,300 feet or 400 meters above the Dead Sea. It is an incredible sight. When the revolt of the Jews against the Romans broke out, in 66 AD, a group of Jewish people strongly opposed to the Roman occupation, known as the Sicarii, S-I-C-A-R-I-I, -I, meaning dagger men, dagger men, that's who the Sicarii were, led by Menahem, the Sicarii went up into Masada, uh, into this, this high up fortress that would be very difficult to attack. Very difficult to squash. If ever, if ever you are on a tour visiting Israel, I very strongly encourage you to visit Masada. Masada is about a two-hour drive from Jerusalem. And you don't want to miss it. It's a little bit like if someone comes to Toronto. You don't want them to miss going to see the Niagara Falls. Totally different situation. But I'm just saying, if ever you're on a tour or you're visiting 
the Holy Land, make sure you go and see Masada. I had the privilege of seeing Masada a few years ago on our Holy Land tour. Now, if you see Masada, you, uh, you will say, how in the world could any army ever attack Masada unless they had helicopters or airplanes, which they obviously did not have in the first century. Uh, here are a couple of pictures for you to just get a brief view of Masada. Can we maybe just show them? All right. I think we have two of them, do we? Okay. All right. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, when the Roman armies finally figured out a way with a huge ramp, by the way, to get to the top of Masada, listen to this, so that the armies would not be able to take the Jewish rebels away as prisoners or to kill them, they didn't want they didn't want the Roman soldiers to have the satisfaction of killing them. The Jews who were in Masada ended up committing mass suicide. Terrible. 960 Jewish Sikara, Sikari rebels were, hold, were holding up and hiding up in that huge fortress. Only, only two women and five children were said to have survived by hiding. By the way, if you visit Masada, you can get to the top of the fortress by either a, a three-minute cable car or a 45-minute walk up the snake path. Probably take more like 60 minutes uh, uh, how, many, how many of you would, would be eager to take the 45 to 60 minute walk up this big ramp to the top? How many of you would? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you, I'm with you. So long as the temperature's not 110 degrees. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, when we were there, they put us on the cable car just because of time concerns, okay? And also, they probably were concerned that some of us might not make it to the top. All right. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 2, when Jesus prophesied that the great, massive, incredible temple of Jerusalem would be completely destroyed, probably no one ever thought it would happen. No one ever thought it could possibly happen. However, as I said, about 40 years later, the temple was demolished just as Jesus prophesied as a result of the historical events which I have just described to you. A person living in the first century who had known about Jesus' prophecy about the temple's destruction and 40 years later, saw the fulfillment of that prophecy, a person would have likely said something like this, you know, 
You know, Jesus also spoke about the signs of his second coming. We better take the signs very seriously. He said he's going to come back. And he, he says and did say that there are going to be these signs. He said what was going to happen about the temple. It happened. He said all these other things about his second coming. We better listen. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 and following, Jesus talks about the signs of his second coming, his return to earth. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3, and I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? That's the New Living Translation. The King James Version says, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And by, by the way, because Jesus spoke these words on what was called the Mount of Olives, what he says here is sometimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. For your interest, just think with me for a moment here. For your interest, the New Living Translation says, what sign will signal your return, your return to earth. And the King James Version says, what shall be the sign of thy coming? All right. The Greek word, this part of the Bible was originally written in Greek. The Greek word translated your return or thy coming, the Greek word is parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I. I-A, parousia, which means presence or arrival, presence or arrival. We, we actually have in our English language the word parousia, although, although you usually don't see it very much uh, used outside of theological circles. So if you're not familiar with it, that's not a surprise, all right? Dr. Ralph Earl in the Beacon Bible Commentary, and I had the privilege of studying, by the way, under uh, Dr. Ralph Earl, tremendous servant of the Lord, fantastic Bible scholar, great Christian. Dr. Ralph Earl, in his book, his commentary on the New Testament, um, says that in the New Testament, parousia is used for the second coming of Christ 18 times, 18 times. Well, what Jesus said would happen about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem happened just as he said about 40 years later. What Jesus said about signs, <clears throat> signs of his second coming is happening and, and will happen. 
And it will happen. My friends, stick with me. Jesus keeps his word. He keeps his word. And here are a few other ways in which he does that, in which he, Jesus, keeps his word. For example, Jesus will give you and me rest and renewal, he says. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest, says the Lord. Do do you need rest and renewal? Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus tells us that he can give you and me peace. He can give us peace during times of uncertainty and times of fear. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus says, Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Do you need peace? Elsewhere in the Holy Bible, we are told that Jesus can give us strength for what we need to do. Strength for what we need to do. In Philippians 4, 13, we read, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me and you and you and you strength. Jesus can also give you and me hope. H-O-P-E. Hope when we feel hopeless. In the Bible, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who gives us, what? Who gives us hope. Who gives us hope. Jesus gives us hope, hope for healing and better health, hope for a job when we're needing one and seeking for one, hope for a a family problem to be resolved, hope for a work crisis to work out, Hope hope for a better tomorrow. Hope for a better tomorrow for those of us here in Canada, for the dear people in the Ukraine, for the dear people in Russia, people all over the world. Jesus can give you and me hope when we feel hopeless. 
Jesus can also give you and me acceptance and salvation. Acceptance and salvation. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says this. He says, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. Isn't that beautiful? Those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. He won't reject you. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Look, or behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Jesus gives to you and me acceptance and salvation. If you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to invite to invite Jesus into your heart, into your life, to live your life with the Lord, not just on your own, but to be assured of his holy presence in your heart and in your life. Have you allowed him to come into your heart and life? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. Bow your head with me. And if this prayer expresses the desire of your heart, I want you to pray it, whether you're here in the sanctuary of Rosewood Church of the Nazarene or you're watching online or you're listening by radio, would you pray this prayer? Dear Lord, thank you for loving me. We discover, we discover from Matthew's gospel here, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, we discover that what Jesus said would happen in Jerusalem, in fact, did happen. And it's, it's an incredible reminder to us of, of how what Jesus said would happen does, in fact, come about. And how grateful we are especially to know that you, dear Lord, can give us acceptance, and salvation. Lord, I invite you, I invite you into my heart, into my life. Lord, I want to repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me, to forgive me of my sins. And I want to put away all my sins. And I want to live my life dedicated to you, dear Lord. On this wonderful Sunday, I open up my heart. I open up my life to you, Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Lord, I want to decide to follow Jesus. I want to live my life dedicated dedicated to Jesus. Thank you for your love, for your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.